Okay, we've uh, established that, um, and I'm having real problems with this podium, it kind of, if you lean on it, it goes down like that. Now, I have to, I'm a bit of a leaner when I, I speak, and I've got to watch this, because if I lean on that and with the microphone here, if you see someone wandering around later with a microphone and podium <laughs> sticking out of one of their nostrils, you'll know that I've had big trouble here. <laughs> right, okay, we've... Um, established that the Lord's Supper is um, a full meal and it's the church comes together and has dinner together and um, we've seen how it related to the four cups at the Passover the first cup was the Old Testament Passover the second cup represented the Last Supper when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper the third cup represented the Lord's Supper itself and the fourth cup represents when Jesus comes back and the marriage supper of the Lamb and what we've seen is that all, what all these things have in common is their meals it's people coming together around the Lord celebrating together over eating and drinking and what we're going to do in this talk is we're going to have a look at the setting in which this happens. Okay, a church is supposed to have a meal together. Right, but what is the setting? And in looking at this, we're going to be looking at the backdrop of the very nature of what a church is. And what we're going to see, what I'm going to establish now, is that, I mean, people like definitions, all right, and particularly theologically-minded people like very theologically-minded definitions. I'm a little little more simple than that. Um, I, can't, I can't quite remember who it was, but it was someone who was a very, very well-known theologian. And he was interviewed once, and somebody said to him, he was a real, yeah, I can't remember the name, but a real deep theologian. And he was asked, what is the most significant and potent theological truth you've ever, ever come against. And he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And no matter how much often we have to struggle with the big questions that, you know, how do we come to terms with what the Word of God says, one thing you can be absolutely sure of it will all boil down to something so simple that a child can understand it. Now, you can get theological tomes four inches deep struggling to define what a church is. And I've got no problem with that as long as they're reaching the correct conclusions. But if you want the actual, the bare minimum, the, the very best biblical definition for a church... And anyone here with theological training, please feel free to say, no, that's, that's a load of rubbish, Burris, what you've just said. Feel free to challenge. But I would say the biblical definition of a church is this, the extended family of God. That is what a church is. And that is what we're going to see in this study and that it's going to be the fact that what do families do families get together in the houses of the people who are part of that family and they hang out together and they eat together i've just described normal family life i've also just described as i'm going to show you a normal family uh, a normal church gathering a church is an extended family and so, what we would therefore not expect to find in Scripture is the idea that a church is something to do with a special building. If what I've said is right, we would expect to see in Scripture that the push of all church life surrounds the homes of those who are part of the church. And we're going to see, too, what the church does together when it comes together. Now, the, the very Greek word that Jesus chose for church, and there were others. I mean, not that Jesus spoke, you know, speaking Greek, but the point is, Scripture, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the word that is used, and there could have been others, was ekklesia. And it specifically means a group of called-out people. And the ecclesia was an already existing concept. 
And it was simply a group of citizens coming together to discuss affairs of state. So by very definition, the very word we have in scripture for church means people. That's what it means that's only what it means. In exactly the same way we saw the Lord's Supper, the Greek word supper, date, non, means a meal and nothing else. We're seeing here the very word for church, ecclesia, means people and nothing else. Okay. And the fact that the church ended up meeting in religious buildings is a testimony to just how far away from the teaching of Jesus and the Apostles the early church fathers actually took the Christian church. And I just refer you on that point back to the talks we did last year when I was here about the traditions and how we saw there how it was that modern church, well not modden church life, for the last 17 or 1800 years church life has been based not on the teaching of scripture. I'm talking here about church practice. I'm not talking about what churches believe theologically. I'm talking about church practice. For the last 1800 odd years, church life and church practice has been based on the teachings of men who came on the scene after the New Testament canon was complete. The early church fathers. And the fact that they ended up in buildings is a testament to how far away they went from the teaching of the New Testament. So, therefore, what we're seeing here is quite simply that church is family. Now, in the Old Testament, I want to see another, you know, sort of aspect of this. In the Old Testament, during Israel's wandering in the wilderness, after they came out of Egypt, after God set them free there, they went into the wilderness and they wandered and after a while they actually built something or they constructed something that, that, that God told Moses when Mount, Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And they, they constructed what was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And this was, was a massive tent. All right. And the idea was that God wanted to live with them. So they built this tent... And the key thing here, Israel was living in tents because they were going through the wilderness, they were travelling, and uh, exciting things happened and it was all in tents. Uh, uh, probably British humour, a bit too subtle there, the excitement was in tents. Oh yeah, never mind. Okay, right, they're living in tents, so the Lord said, okay, I'll have a tent too. So they built him a tent and he moved in. Okay. But later on, once Israel got into the Promised Land, they weren't living in tents anymore, they were living in proper houses because they were now settled permanently. And there they were in their proper houses and the Lord is still living in this portable tent in the tabernacle. And that was when King David said, hey look, I've got this marvellous palace, this wonderful house. I'm, I'm getting a better deal here, materially speaking, than the Lord is. And, and, and David wanted to build a temple, a permanent house for the Lord to live in. Of course, the Lord said, no, you're a man of war, but your son will. And so eventually Solomon built God a temple. And isn't, isn't it great? When his people in the Old Testament, when they lived in tents, the Lord lived in a tent. When they got into a bit of a better house, the Lord made sure they had all their nice houses first. Only then did he move out of his tent into a temple. See that how the Lord identifies with his people? But the point is the Lord lived in the tabernacle and then later on he lived in the temple. All right? But then a big change happened with the coming of Jesus. And of course, eventually the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And arguably, arguably, it was a temple that the Lord had never lived in anyway. Because it wasn't the temple that Solomon had built. And it wasn't the reconstructed temple that Haggai and that lot did. But the point is, a massive change came about when Jesus came. Now, if you go to John, John's Gospel... John's Gospel, chapter 2. And in verse 19, we read this. Remember, we've established 
that the church is God's family. Now we're looking at different places where God lives. Right, so this is John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and they were pointing to Herod's temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. Now go to Colossians. Colossians, chapter 1, first of all. So we've seen God lived in the tabernacle, and then he lived in the temple, and... Uh, Colossians chapter 1, and now we're seeing that he's uh, living in Jesus. Hmm. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And then if you go to Colossians chapter 2, and verse 9, and we read this. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now go back to John's Gospel and chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And in verse 14, we've had the background. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But in, in verse 14, of course, this is speaking of Jesus. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And what's interesting, that word there, dwelling, in the Greek, is the same as the word for a tabernacle or a tent. What we are seeing here, the tabernacle, the temple, and now Jesus, what we're seeing is God having changes of address. Now, how many of you have lived in different places? You've lived in one place, then you live in another. That's right, then you live in another. You're changing your address. And here, what we're seeing is exactly that. That we see Almighty God changing his address. Now, obviously, let me clarify here, um, you know, so that you don't think I'm, I'm starting to go off the wall now. God obviously lives in heaven, all right? God obviously lives everywhere, because he is everywhere. The universe cannot contain him. But nevertheless, as we look through human history, we do see the Lord God living in specific places as well. I mean, think of it as his particular presence. And we've seen that he lived in heaven, then he lived in a tabernacle, a big tent, then he lived in a house... Okay, and then he lived in he lived in Jesus. Well, so why why did God live in Jesus? Well, for this simple reason. Jesus is God. God decided I'm gonna live as a human being. And Jesus is the man that God became, the second person of the Trinity. So we see heaven, tabernacle, you know, God moving in, then he moves out, and then we get the temple, and God moves in. Now we see that God is living, not in the tabernacle anymore, not in the temple anymore, he's living in Jesus, because he is Jesus. I live in my body. When you see my body, you are seeing Beresford. When we see Jesus, which we will do one day, but when the disciples then, when they saw Jesus, they saw the Lord God of Israel. You live in your body, God lives in his. When you look at me, you see Beresford. When you look at God in human form, you're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to ask the question, are there any other changes of address we need to know about? I mean, you know, was, 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 was becoming a man it, or, or does God move on and have yet further addresses? Well, I want to show you that he does. If you go to John 14, John 14, and I'm going to read verse 23, and then we're going to go back to 
verse 16 and 17. So John 14 and verse 23. Now listen to this. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Who's the we? The Father and Jesus. Here Jesus says that those who love me, I and my Father, we're going to come and live in you. Well, your address is where you live. Go back into verse 16 and 17. And here Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot see him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The Trinity, and don't ask me or anyone to explain the Trinity. We know that the Lord God of Israel is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I can't fully explain that. I can't even explain how a television works, but it works. It's all I need to know. God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The moment you believe in Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit come and live in you. His address suddenly becomes you. So, there's a change of address. So then, Jesus wanted to come and live in his people. Now then, when did this happen? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and uh, let's read verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now just hold that. What exactly is happening here? Well, we've already seen that God moved into the tabernacle. And when he did, something happened. And later on, he moved into the temple. And when he did, something happened. Now let's look what happened when he moved into the temple. If you go back into the Old Testament and find 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles and chapter 5. And I'm going to read verse 12. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. Just remember that, 120 priests. Now, go down into verse 13, the second part of verse 13. Um, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the, cr the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Now, the Jews came to call this the Shekinah presence of God, the manifest presence, if you like, of the Holy Spirit bringing, as it were, the Lord to them. So, when God moved into the tabernacle, the tent, the Shekinah glory descended. When he moved into the temple, once they were in Israel, the Shekinah glory, as we're seeing here, descended. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Shekinah glory moves into God's latest address, the church. That's what Pentecost was. The Shekinah glory descending on God's new address, the church of Jesus Christ. And in Acts, just go back into verse 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1 and verse 15, 
And he says, in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. What happened when the Shekinah glory fell on the temple and God moved in? There are 120 priests. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Lord moved in to 120 priests. Because the church is the priesthood of God. You and I are priests. And that means one thing. What is a priest? A priest is someone who can mediate between a human being and the Lord God. If you're a believer, how does that make you a priest? Because you can bring anyone to Jesus. We're priests. That's what the church is. Can you see the parallel? Now, go over to 1 Peter. Get some... uh, Scriptures under our belt here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. We are the temple that God lives in. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Now in these verses, he's addressing us as individual believers. You individually, you as an individual are the temple of God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit lives in you, if so be. You are a believer and a disciple of Jesus. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And Paul says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And the context there is Paul saying you mustn't, as an individual, be linked to a, a pagan individual in the wrong way. So again, he's talking about individuals and he calls the individual believer the temple of God. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to see that the same thing is true of believers corporately. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. And the Greek there is not the you of an individual, he's talking to them as the corporate church. It's a plural you. So when believers come together, they constitute God's temple. Go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21 and 22. And Paul says, in him, the whole building, so this is us corporately, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together. This is corporate. Built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And then this point, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. And the writer says, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we, plural, are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So what we're seeing here, is that whether as individual believers and when we come together corporately, we are the temple of God. We are the house in which God lives. In Matthew 16, verse 18, don't turn to it, Jesus said, I will build my church, ecclesia. We've already seen that means people. Now what's interesting is that this Greek word build, when he says I will build my church, it's oikodomeo. And it specifically means to build a house. So a valid translation would be, I will build my house, the church. Because the church is a house. What do you do with a house that you build? You live in it. You build it for yourself and then you live in it. So where does God live today? 
He still lives in heaven. He obviously still lives in Jesus because Jesus is God, all right? But when it comes to God's particular presence living in a specific place, is it the tabernacle? No, long gone. Is it the temple? No, long gone. So where does he live today? In you and me, in believers. We are the house in which God lives. And this is why one of the things that the church is referred to in Scripture is the body of Christ. As I said earlier, you live in your body. I live in my body. Okay. Now then, if, 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 if you don't live in your body, you're in trouble. You're dead. Or, if, you're, if you don't live on your own in your body, you're in trouble. You're either real demonized or you're schizophrenic or something. I'm glad I'm not schizophrenic. Oh, yes, so am I. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, been, I've, I've actually been accused of being schizophrenic. I mean, I've been accused of everything. But when I've been accused of being schizophrenic, but I mean, it's crazy. I'm, don't you worry about us. We're fine. <laughs> so you live in your body. Well, where does Jesus live? He lives in his body. Now, let me tell you, Jesus has two bodies. He's got his own literal physical body up in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he's got another one on earth. And it's us. It's all believers. Everyone who lives, who follows him, is his body. So the point is that what we're seeing is Jesus lives in people. In the Old Testament, he lived in a tent, and then he lived in a temple. What does God live in today? He lives in people. Does God live in buildings? Well, let's see if the New Testament has something specific to say about that. If you go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And this is the... Um, oh, could someone find my bottle of water? It's, it's gone. Oh, it's over there. Could someone just bring it over for me? I'm connected to the mic here. Oh, lovely. Thanks ever so much. Right, yeah, just be finding... Bless you. Uh, right. Acts 7 and verse 48. And this is when Stephen is, is, is being martyred. And he says this. He says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. And look back over 1800s of, 1,800 years of church history, where when you say church, the knee-jerk response of even the man in the street, as well as believers, is they think of a building. They think of a building where believers go to worship. That's the exact opposite of what a church is. A church is people. So, what we're seeing is... Oh, hang on a sec. Let's just have a little bit... Let's just go on and follow the story here with Stephen, because this is, this is important, look. Because this got him into trouble, saying that God doesn't live in buildings as well. Listen to this, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Presbyterians? <laughs> but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, so they're, they're, they're throwing rocks at him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me tell you, no one can kill you, but they can rock you to sleep. Oh, okay, worth a try. Anyway, what, what we're seeing... <laughs> okay, what we're seeing, okay, is that God lives with and in believers. We are his house. Now, here's the question. Who is it normative, all things being equal, to live with? 
All things being equal, normatively, whose dwelling do you share? Your family's. You live with your family. Now, what have we seen? The church is where God lives. How did I define a church? It's the extended family of God. You live with your family. God lives with his family. The church is the family of God. And it really is as simple as that. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And verse 12 and 13. And John says, To all who received him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're the Lord's family. Ephesians chapter 2. I know this isn't new to believers, but my goodness, the biblical application of it is. So we need to really ground ourselves in this. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. You see, most believers, you say, you know, hey, are you brothers and sisters? Oh yeah, yeah, we're the family of God. Oh, do you live like brother and sister? Well, how do you mean? Well, just share your lives in community, you know, do you kind of, you know, I don't mean all living in the same building, but do you have fellowship like the early believers? And Oh no, no. You see, so in order to get the practice right, we've got to really understand what the truth about us is. And Ephesians 2 verse 9, Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Belinda and Bethany are members of my household. We are a family. That's what it is. Go to 1 Timothy. One Timothy chapter three, verse four and five. He says, uh, "Oh, I'm in two Thessalonians. Sorry. One Timothy. That will never do. Goodness. One One Timothy." Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And he says, for everything... I'm still in the wrong one. Uh, oh, that's chapter 4. Sorry, I will get there. This, this is why I do whole day conferences. That's how long it takes me to get there, you see. Okay. Right, okay, so 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. And Paul says, speaking of an elder, he says he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And Paul there says, because his family. If, if, if you've got someone who's recognised as an elder, if his family isn't in order, how can he be a help and a blessing to God's family? So all the way through. And our relationship with each other, when it comes to being together in a church, should be just that. It should be the relationship of extended family. And if our relationship together is of extended family, then when we are together, would you not expect us to behave like family? I mean, can you imagine when you have a family get-together, all right? And, uh, you know, sort of like there's, there's the family come round. And so you, you, know, you kick things off with a service. You know, and Dad leads a service. You know, and, and, and there's sort of like, you know, community singing. But, I mean, obviously, Dad's up front, and you get the chairs out in a row, all right, in rows. And, and, and then you go through this, this formal service. And, and, and then after that, you're, you're kind of, everyone's getting a bit peckish. So out comes a bit of bread and a little tumbler of juice, and that's it. And you have that, and then you all go home, see. And then you start phoning each other up, because you haven't had a chance to talk to anyone. You see, I mean, what a dysfunctional family. And the thing with unbiblical churches, we're not saying they're not churches, we're saying they're dysfunctional churches. Because the point is, if a church is an extended family of God, what families get together and then behave like religious institutions? It's a nonsense. Our relationship together is that of family, and therefore the manner 
of churches gathering together, as we see in Scripture, we should expect to see that mirroring family life, which is exactly what we're going to see that it does do. So what we're seeing here is family, family, family. A church is an extended family of God. Now, we just need at this point to just acknowledge two different aspects of the church, and this is important. The the church exists. Remember, church is God's family. It's all believers, right? So we've got to understand the two modes, if you like, in which church exists. Let me explain. First of all, you get what the theologians refer to as the church universal, by which they mean all believers since Jesus rose again, and all believers who aren't even believers yet. People haven't even been born. Church universal, I think of it in terms of the the church throughout space and time. This is every believer who ever has existed, every believer who does exist, and every believer who is going to exist. So that's the first thing. Every believer, God's entire gathered family crossing the boundaries of space and time. But then the other way in which the church exists is what theologians tend to refer to as the church militant. I prefer just to say it's the church throughout space at any one time. You see? So at this moment, every believer on the face of the earth is the church of Jesus Christ. So we've seen church in its widest form, all right? But the point is... In Scripture, we see, too, that the church is also broken down into individual churches in local geographical areas. And that's tremendously important to understand. So you've got the church throughout space and time. You've got the church throughout space now. But now you've also got all the little individual churches that exist. Now, that's what we're looking at. It's that manifestation of the church that we're looking at. So if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just whip through some scriptures here. 1 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And um, verse 2. And Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth. Go to Galatians. And in Galatians, again, chapter 1, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, because Galatia wasn't one place, it was a geographical area, more like Washington State or something like that. And as you go through scripture, you will always find this, it's just the church in that particular place. Indeed, in Revelation, you have the seven churches in that particular area. And they are always and only geographical locations. So in that sense, the only church that exists that we actually do anything about, I mean, you are part of the church universal and the church militant, whether you like it or not, regardless of what you do, you wake up in the morning and you're part of the church. But the church of which we are actually a part and that we attend those believers that we gather together with, that church where the rubber hits the road, as you might say, is always simply in a geographical location. So the idea of having a Baptist church is biblically a nonsense. The idea of having a Methodist church, a Pentecostal church, a Reformed church, can you see all these things are biblically a nonsense? Because these are all denominational groupings around something other than simply what the Bible teaches for being a church. The only specific church in that sense that scripture would recognise would just be a local church. So therefore, in the scripture we don't see titles of churches. Churches don't have names. They simply have geographical locations you know now you need that 
you know, sort of so, you know, I mean, you, you knew that Paul was writing to the church in Corinth and said that there and didn't write that to the church in Thessalonica. But outside of that, you see, the idea of churches having names and denominations is biblically, it's just crazy because that is institutionalism. We are seeing that church is quite simply family. It's as simple as that. So our definition is complete. A church is an extended family of God. So our question is, and let me remind you, because you might have forgotten, that in this talk we're looking at the setting of the Lord's Supper. You know, we're saying, okay, what are the circumstances in which you come together and have this full meal called the Lord's Supper? All right. And what we're seeing is, quite simply, that if you're going to simply live together and relate together, I mean, when live together, I don't mean in the same, you know, under the same roof, but if you're going to share your lives together as part of an individual local church, then the question we've got to ask is, right, are we going to see in Scripture something institutional, or are we going to see a framework that simply enables you to function just like an extended family. Because that will be the setting of the meal of the Lord's Supper. And so that is what I want to demonstrate to you. That when churches come together, when, when a church convenes, when you go together with the other people who together with you comprise that church you are part of, what do you do? And what we're going to see is you function just like an extended family. So let's actually see that. Well, we've already seen that you get dinner together, the Lord's Supper. Well, that's what families do if you get together, isn't it? You eat together, okay. And so what we're going to see now is the other thing that you do when you get together as a church. So we've already seen you have the Lord's Supper, you have a meal together. So what's the other thing you do? Okay, because it's a simple fact, and later on I will go back to the experts, it's a simple fact that in the New Testament, whilst churches were set up based on the teaching of the apostles, remember, who got it from Jesus, when a church came together, they came together to do two things. One of which we've already seen is to have a meal together, the Lord's Supper. We've also seen that when they come together, they come together um, in people's houses. And if you go through scripture, you'll find that every time an individual church is located, it's always in someone's house. Okay. Um, so therefore we're saying, when you do get together, you have the Lord's Supper, but what's the other thing that you do? Now let's let's actually just um, just check that out a bit. This 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 thing about houses. Okay, um, go to um, yeah, go go to Romans 16. All right. I, I won't assume that you've uh, checked this out in Scripture before. So go go to Romans 16 and verse five, and Paul says greet the church, he's mentioned a couple of people, and he says, greet also the church that meets at their house. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And in verse 19, Paul says, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 and uh, verse 15. And Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Go to Philemon, verse 2. Paul says to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Athia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Now go to James. These might not be verses you've ever thought about before, but I think they're very interesting. They 
say an awful lot. And um, James, and in chapter 2, and he's uh, telling them off for showing favouritism, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, why doesn't he say, now the rich man comes in, you say, oh, you come and have a seat at the front. No, maybe up on the rostrum with the speaker. And the poor man, no, you go, and, you, you go and sit on the row at the back. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, the poor man who's getting bad treatment gets told to stand in a corner or to sit on the floor. Because there's not much space. Have you ever thought of that? What a ridiculous thing to write to a church if it met in a big building. So, if you're going to show favouritism, then, then the honoured people will get the seats the poor man who's just come in will stand him in the corner by the TV or sit him on the floor. You see, because the early church only met in houses. It was as simple as that. When and a particular church came together, it came together in someone's house. And so therefore, in all this, we're, we're just seeing family, 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 family. And now I'm going to show you that the other thing that a church does when it gathers together. We have the Lord's Supper as a full meal, but the other thing is that there is corporate worship and edification of each other, but it happens in a particular way. And I'm going to show you that what the Bible teaches is that there is, well, there is nothing in Scripture that even vaguely resembles a church service. It is not there. What a church would do is you'd be sitting around in someone's lounge and there was a time of sharing, no one led it, and everyone was free to take part as the Lord led them. It was open, it was free, it was spontaneous, and it was participatory. That is the only gathering we see in Scripture when a particular church comes together. Okay. Now then, let's, let's go back to, to 1 Corinthians. We've already seen that from chapter 10 and then through chapter 11, he's sorting out the abuse of the love feast. Then, when we get into chapter 12, he starts dealing with their abuses of the gifts of the Spirit. And it's interesting to note that the only way that things charismatic are ever going to be safe is when they're put back where they belong. When it comes to using the gifts of the Spirit, which Scripture would have us do, there's a danger. And the danger is always two things. There's a danger of hysteria when you get large numbers. And there's a danger of manipulation when you get upfront leadership coordinating the large numbers. Isn't it interesting that when the Bible teaches about the gifts of the Spirit, where is the setting? It's in someone's house, so numbers are small, and it's in a gathering that is open and participatory with no one leading from the front. And that's how the gifts of the Spirit were designed to be used. Take them out of that and put them in big meetings, led from the front with lots of people, that's when you get manipulation, and that is when you get hysteria. And when you look at stuff like all the Toronto Blessing, and well, not just that, I mean, what's happening in Toronto Blessing has been happening in churches in England since the year dot. I mean, nothing new about it. It started happening in the 50s in England, all right? But this is because people aren't observing the safety rules for the gifts of the Spirit, because they're being used in the context of unbiblical churches. But Paul regulates them. He gives them the basic rules. But what's interesting, the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 12, and remember, he's talking about the gathering of a church. 
And the push behind it, he says, each one has the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he then moves into using the picture of a body. And what he's saying is, in a healthy body, every part moves. So what he's talking about is when a church comes together, everyone should be taking part. It's not something where one person or maybe a couple of people are doing everything from the front and everyone else just follows along behind passively. Paul taught a gathering together that was completely participatory with various, well, with, with, with lots of people taking part. But when I say lots of people, remember we're talking about small numbers. And the reason the early church never needed anything more than houses is because if you want a gathering that is participatory in nature, the moment that you get big numbers, you can't do that anymore. So a house is all you need. So the early church grew by when a church was too big to any more comfortably everyone take part. Hey, it's time now to become two churches. Boom. So you become two churches or three churches or whatever. Each church, you know, a full, complete church. But the whole point was small numbers so that everyone could take part. And this is the push behind Romans 12, when Paul is talking about this picture of the body. And he talks about that there are parts of the body that are less honourable than others. And he says, but we give them more attention, don't we? And of course, what he's saying there is, look, humanly speaking, there are two types of believer. There are believers who are naturally very upfront and good at talking. All right? There are the other type of believer who are shy and reticent and you're unlikely to get anything out of them. Obviously, the believers like me. You know, obviously. So what he says is, look, hey, if, if you're thinking, you know, sort of like, oh no, I'm not an eye, I'm no good, I'm not an ear, I haven't got anything to say. He says, yes you have, don't say that. You're a part of the body. You're vital. He's, he's the dishonourable members, the people who in a worldly fashion aren't quite so, you know, able to talk and share. He's saying, no, you have got something to give, right? And then to the noisy people, he says, yeah, but who can say, oh, I'm, I'm an ear, I don't need you. See? He says, no, that's completely wrong. You do need all those other parts of the body. And of course, what he's doing, he's saying, look, you naturally noisy people just back off a bit. He's not saying don't share anything, but he's saying make sure that you're not dominating because you've got to leave plenty of room to encourage the quiet people to share and to pray and to teach. Now then, what a nonsense to be saying this if the meeting is a big meeting. It's crazy. The whole push behind it is everybody participating. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul moves on, he puts the gifts of the Spirit in perspective. And he says, now look, this obsession you've got with the gifts of the Spirit, he says, I just want you to realise this. Love matters more than the gifts of the Spirit. He doesn't say the gifts of the Spirit don't matter. He says love matters more. And then he tells them why. Because he says love is eternal. He says faith, hope and love, they're eternal. When you're glorified, when you're with the Lord in glory, you'll still have faith, hope and love. But he says the gifts of the Spirit, once you die, once you're with the Lord, the gifts of the Spirit, what are they? And he says, I put away childish things. Now, of course... What he's bringing out here, he's saying, look, I mean, you know, so when I was a kid, I, I, I loved my train set, but now I'm old, I've grown out of it. Wish I could say the same, but I haven't loved my train set, you see. But what he's saying is, I grew out of that. That was fitting for then, it's not now. Now, in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, he says, look, you Corinthians, you're obsessed with it, especially tongues. You're obsessed with it, as if it's all that matters. And he says, don't you realise that when you die, when you're with the Lord, when the perfect comes, because you can't get more perfect than being with the Lord. That's the perfect he's talking about. And he says, when you're with the Lord, you see, the gifts of the Spirit are for doing a job. They're for serving the Lord in a sinful world. When you're with him in glory, that job is over. Now then, when you finish digging the garden, do you, do you take the fork into the lounge with you to watch Star Trek. I don't. When the job's done, I discard the tool. 
when you're with the Lord in glory, you won't need the gifts of the Spirit anymore. And Paul says, look, for heaven's sake, understand that. You're making the gifts of the Spirit everything, but he says a day's going to come when there'll be nothing, because you won't need them. They're tools to do a job. So he says, get that in perspective. Love is eternal. So is faith and hope. That's what really matters. So he's just saying, look, you know, back off the obsession with the gifts of the Spirit and just up the love, okay? Then, when he moves into 1 Corinthians 14, he goes back to the gifts and everything, and he gives the ground rules. The ground rules for a biblical gathering that's open and participatory. They're simple things. Only one person at a time speaking. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's a good little ground rule. But what you get is that in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, we get the basic format of what he's saying, and it's this. What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation or tongue or interpretation. Each one hath, as it says in the King James Version. Can you see? That is what they did when they came together. Paul in Corinthians is regulating the proper way to partake of the love feast, the proper way to have your sharing time that's open with everyone taking part, the ground rules for it, and in particular the ground rules for the gifts of the Spirit, which are meant to be used in that context. And so what we've simply got is that when churches came together at the time of the New Testament, they were small in number, the more believers you had, the more churches you had. This idea of the more believers you get, the bigger the, a church gets is... You, you don't want a few massive churches. You want dozens and dozens and dozens of little churches. Because it's family. It's personal. It's, you know, I mean, one of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, look, if, if one part of the body is honoured, you're all honoured. But if, if one is sad, you're all affected. If one is hurting, you're all hurting. How could that possibly be true of a church that isn't small in number? In the church of which we're part of back home, if someone is blessed, we know about it. We can rejoice. If one of us is hurt, we know about it. So we can weep with those who weep. Because we're small, and that's the way it's meant to be. So we've got these groups, these churches, they met in each other's homes, they came together, they had this open sharing and worship and praying together and teaching each other and singing and using the gifts of the Spirit and encouraging each other and prophesying and all that, and they would have the Lord's Supper together as a full meal. And so, therefore, now we have the setting. I've said that a church is an extended family. Well, form follows function. You know, if you want, you know, sort of like, you know, if you want an aeroplane, you design something with wings. Form follows function. If it's not designed properly, it won't do the job you want it to do. Now, what's a church? An extended family. So what is the setup we would expect to find in Scripture? The setup of an extended family. What do families do? They come together, they hang out together, they share together, encourage each other, meet needs, and they eat together. I've just described a biblical church gathering. Because a church is an extended family. But again, let's go back to the experts. I don't expect you to take that from me. I could be wrong. And you'd have to know me as well as I do to know how wrong I can be. But these guys, I think you'll agree, probably aren't wrong. Again, I'm going to quote from world-recognized biblical scholars. These, these are the top guys, okay? Now then, uh, Dr. Henry Sefton... Um, was the lecturer in church history at the University of Aberdeen. Now then, in a lion handbook, a history of Christianity, and I love to quote from things like the lion handbooks, because these are books on, on shelves across the world of Christians. You see what I mean? These are the mainstream books you go and buy from the bookshop. Now then, you might think that all this 
biblical church stuff sounds a bit weird because it's so different. But all you've got to do, just read through the books on your, on, on, on your shelves at home. You know, and when they're dealing with what the early church was like, they're going to tell you just what I'm telling you. The only difference between me and these guys is I think we should still do it like they did it back then. That's the only difference. There is no disagreement between me and the scholars. I mean, not that they know who I was from Adam anyway. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, when it comes to describing what the early church was like, I'm only telling you what any scholar will. But, unlike these guys who are all establishment men, I say the church ought to still be like it. They say the church should be based on the teaching of the early church fathers, not the apostles. That's where I disagree with them. But anyway, Henry Sefton, this is what he said. Worship in the house church, that's all there was in the New Testament. They met in houses. Worship in the house church had been of an intimate kind in which all present had taken an active part. Isn't that what I've said? I was right all along, okay? But not because I'm clever, just because I've read these guys, you see. So, I mean, really, they're the ones who are clever. But the point is, he then goes on to say, this change from being a corporate action of the whole church into a service said by the clergy to which the laity listened. You see the difference? A service is the exact opposite to what the early church did. Dr. John Drain, let's go back to him, and again introducing the New Testament. We quoted that book in the last talk. He says this, In the earliest days, their worship was spontaneous. This seems to have been regarded as the ideal. For when Paul describes how a church meeting should proceed, he depicts a spirit-led participation by many, if not all. There was the fact that anyone had the freedom to participate in such worship. In the ideal situation, when everyone was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this was the perfect expression of Christian freedom. He's reading the same Bible as I am. But of course he is. So we come to the same conclusion. You know, these aren't nuances between certain deep doctrines where you can honestly have different perceptions. This is just just simple, observable fact. Now then, another book in England that everyone who has ever been to a Bible college or who has ever been to theological college Another book that they will have been given virtually the day they go is by A.M. Rennick, and it's called The Story of the Church. It's become a recognised standard work on kind of church history. At the beginning of the book, there's a chapter on the apostolic age. And Rennick says this, The very essence of church organisation and Christian life and worship was simplicity. Their worship was free and spontaneous under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and had not yet become inflexible through the use of manuals of devotion, i.e. the introduction of a service of some kind. So again, there you have it. It's not just me, it's not just Beresford being off the wall again, it's not just his particular slant or his rather strange interpretation or something like that. This is what every Bible scholar will tell you. This is what anyone who knows their biblical onions will tell you. When you read the New Testament and ask what was the early church like, this is what the early church was like. Exactly what I'm saying to you here. The only difference between me and it would appear most other people is that I believe we ought to just be doing it exactly the same as they did. Simple as that. Because there's not one word in scripture that suggests 
that the Lord ever intended for this to change. It is quite simply normative church life as we see throughout the pages of Scripture. So, what have we seen thus far? We've seen thus far that the Lord's Supper is a full meal that the gathered church shares together. The setting is at someone's house. The setting is of open, free, spontaneous, participatory worship, sharing together, teaching each other, gifts of the Spirit, whatever. Remember, when you come together, like here, this isn't a church gathering, this is a teaching session. So, the focus is predominantly on me, so you're sitting in rows, okay, which is fair enough. The dynamic is quite simply this, in a large meeting that's led from the front, you face whoever's speaking. You face the leader, if you like, okay? That's absolutely right and proper in certain settings. In a biblical church, are you facing the leader? No, because there isn't a leader. But you're sitting round in a circle, because if you're sitting in someone's lounge, everyone is facing everyone else. So you are actually, in that sense, facing the leader. Because if I glance over there, there's Andy. Well, Andy might share something. I look over there, there's Belinda. Belinda might pray. I look over there, there's Joel. He may share a teaching. Oh, there's Janice. She may prophesy. At all points, you're looking at whoever the Lord is moving through. Now, the Lord wants to move through the gathered church. He doesn't just want to move through leaders. That's ridiculous. He wants to move through the gathered church so that everyone is edifying everyone else. So, what we've seen, the love feast is simply the church family get together and shared meal. Now, Next time, we're going to move on and we're going to start looking at the spiritual significance of the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to us or what should it mean to us? What are the implications for us if indeed we partake of that meal together? And we'll move on to that next time.